May the 20th, 2012, lecture discussion number 69 on the book of Romans. And for those of you who are keeping score, uh, both internet and otherwise, today's lecture number 69 is the third installment of the Rebellious Son trilogy, for lack of a better term. And trilogy seemed to be uh, more modern than I, well, my first choice. So that's what I'm calling these last three that have fit together, 67, 68, 69. They are the Rebellious Son uh, trilogy, again, for lack of a better term. And hopefully by now, every one of you, certainly those of you who have been here, uh, you're up to speed on the term Rebellious Son. That's Deuteronomy 21. I'll start erasing the board here. Deuteronomy 21 essentially says the rebellious son has to face capital punishment. He is considered the evil, and he must be removed. And that's important to note uh, because it is a capital punishment issue. It requires the stoning of this rebellious son who curses and plots to kill his father and mother and actually does, in fact, kill his father, Exodus 21.15, and is linked to the horrors of child sacrifice or Moloch, Leviticus 20. The mistake everybody makes with Deuteronomy 21 uh, 18 through 21 is they do not find the connection to Exodus 21 and they do not find the connection to Leviticus 20. And if you do that, you find out that the rebellious son is someone of profound evil. Extraordinary evil. One of the most evil figures in all of the Old Testament and certainly therefore of all of Scripture. Are you saying the rebellious son has, uh, uh, for those on the internet who always tell me, I don't let you know what the questions are from the audience. We just got one from Troy in the second row. Um, Troy asked, does the rebellious son have a, have a connection to the Antichrist? Is that correct? Yeah, well, of course he does. But first and foremost, he has a connection somewhere else. He is definitely a symbol of somebody. And we'll get to that as we go. Try not to get ahead of the lecturer, if you can. I know it's hard. I, I go really slow. But I have this evil, great evil, this man who curses and kills his family, uh, who uh, kills children, uh, who uh, kidnaps, uh, who's a very, very profound evil. And he is to be removed. And people read that and they don't make the connections, as I say, to the other places in Scripture, and they think that well, all I have here in the rebellious son is some guy who doesn't make his bed or put his dishes in the dishwasher. Why do I bring that up? Okay, that's what they think. That is not what this is about. This is about an extraordinarily evil figure, and uh, you need to know that. Everybody that uh, that quotes this in the newspaper letter to the editors is profoundly ignorant of what this is, and that's a shame. How did they get there? How come the church doesn't teach them the symbol that is the rebellious son as Troy immediately makes the leap to the Antichrist? He has to be removed. When God says something like that, that you know it's extraordinarily important. I, I should bring this. Uh, I, I was talking about it earlier, so I'll bring it up again. I've brought it up twice. Omniperfection. You'll see that term. There's three terms you really need to know about 
Scripture. Omniperfection, what do I always call it? I don't call it that. I have many reasons for not doing it. But that is the goodness of God. The goodness of God is always present as part of His omnipotence, His omniscience, and His um, uh, omnipresence. His goodness has to be there. There is no place His goodness isn't. We'll get into the lake of fire maybe next Sunday if you want to bring that question. Omnipresence and the lake of fire bring up an issue. But this is his goodness. He is always good, okay? There's also something called a dramatic theodicy. You'll hear me say that. I'm taking a little bit of a, this is not in the notes. Dramatic theodicy. When I first brought this up uh, to a, a group of scholars, they looked at me like I was crazy. They had never heard it, so I immediately suggested that they go back to their seminaries and get a refund. They didn't like that either. But a dramatic theodicy, uh, a theodicy is a response to evil. And so what that means is, is when God responds to evil, a question about evil, he does it in a way where we can understand it. And so he, he actually kind of weaves or tells a story that he is part of. You see that at Gethsemane. You see that with Abraham at Sodom and Gomorrah. You see that at Moses and Aaron. Uh, when they try to uh, leave their job, those are dramatic theodicies or responses to evil. So understanding those two things, understanding the goodness of God is, is, uh, is everywhere, has to be everywhere. Don't disregard it. So when you read De- Deuteronomy 21, you know that this is good. There's something really wrong with this person, this rebellious son. He has to be removed. Before what? before he kills as many people as he can. It's a profoundly evil person, the rebellious son of Deuteronomy, and he has to be dealt with. It isn't, it isn't failure to mow the lawn or disrespect. It's murder. He's a murderer. That's what's going on. And he's a, he's a murderer that you can't imagine. So all of that becomes important, understanding the rebellious son and what the symbol is, because Jesus Christ himself, the God of creation, he's the God of creation, John 1, 3. Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. He is the Lord God Almighty. He's the I Am. He's the Ancient of Days. He calls the scribes and the Pharisees rebellious sons. He assigns Deuteronomy 21, 18 through 21 to the scribes and the Pharisees to their face. He calls them what? profoundly evil that must be stoned and removed. That's what he does. He does that at Matthew 15, 1 through 3, and Mark 7, 1 through 9. So God says, Christ says, interchangeable, that this profound evil, the evil, that is the Pharisees. It's not only the, them personally, the persons of the Pharisees. It's the teaching of the Pharisees has to be removed. So there you go. You've got one very significant symbol. The rebellious son. Oh, let me see what I can do here. The rebellious son... The most significant thing that you should know is that it is assigned to the Pharisees by Christ. 
So do not think that the Pharisees are some misguided little group of theologians that wander around that don't have things figured out. That is not what God calls them. He calls them profoundly wicked. So wicked, it's astonishing that the, how wicked they are. That's what he does. And they also, to that symbol of the rebellious son, sorry I forgot the word son up there, but he also assigns to them these terms, rich man, rich fool. So those two symbols are pictures of the Pharisees. Rich fool, rich man, rebellious son. Rich fool, rich man being one. And he says, as I said to you, he says it directly to them. You can interchange those two symbols at any time. And he, Christ does that, and he gives it right to them, and they had full knowledge of what it was he was saying. Now, <coughs> he says to the Pharisees that they're the rich man or the rich fool that really comes up, I think, probably in the most fascinating way in Matthew 19. And I'll, I thought I wasn't going to read it, but I, as, I, as I got into it, I realized I probably need to read it. Because so few people understand Matthew 19, they think it's about what? They think it's about divorce. And it is. But it's about much more than that. That rich fool or rich man symbol is given to the disciples in the context of Matthew 19.3 which is the divorce test or the divorce trick question or the divorce trap, if you will. And I don't know if you're familiar with it, but uh, we'll try to cover it here. Matthew 19, 3 through 15 has, is, a, is very complex. I hope you'd think that all the time when you go through the Bible. It's very complex, Matthew 19 is, this discussion. This is God talking to the rebellious sons about what? They come to him with a trick question about divorce. They think they're going to trap him. They're convinced he doesn't have... Imagine the committee meeting. We have got to deal with this person, this Jesus Christ. We're not really sure who he is. He seems pretty powerful. He seems really smart. He is able to tell Satan to depart, and Satan has to obey him. Uh-oh, he's at a pretty high level. And every time we go to do something with him, he walks through us. Uh, here's another thing. Besides theodicies, uh, dramatic theodicies, omniperfection, you have to begin to understand physical reality versus ultimate reality. See, Kathy, every time you say something to me before the sermon, it gets in the sermon, right? Ooh, that's why everyone, well, not everyone, not everyone. But, uh, oh, I just broke my pen. That's the second or third pen I've broken in the last few weeks. I'm becoming uncontrollably violent. Ask Seth. Okay. Down to one pen left. But let me say this. Physical reality and ultimate reality are very important that you know. You need to know. Listen. I have a physical reality. It has, it has laws, ubiquitous laws in it. It is created by God. But there is an ultimate reality. And if all you do is focus on the physical reality, what are you? 
Yeah, you're, you're, you're a one-legged something. You're in trouble. And you're not, it's not gonna work. You're gonna be overcome. Understand the ultimate reality. I, again, that's all Kathy's fault because people write her letters and torment her about things that are physical, not things that are ultimate. And she gets mad at them, which she should. Okay, back to Matthew 19. You need to know that Matthew 19 is not just about divorce. It isn't just about you and your divorce. I'm sorry. I'm not sorry. You need to read the Bible as if it isn't just about you. Matthew 19 is very difficult to understand. We're going to take it on here in just a second. Because I recognized as I began to talk about it, this is where the rich man is really discussed by Christ and really applied to the, to the, uh, the Pharisees. And the disciples are astonished by what he says about the Pharisees because they think the Pharisees are what? They think the Pharisees are good. And Christ says the opposite. He says the Pharisees are the evil in this nation. And that astonished the, the, uh, the disciples. And so here's this thing, this trick question on divorce, this trap question that the Pharisees come, and again, imagine the committee meeting where they sit down and they go, okay, we can't deal with this guy. What question that can we ask him that if he makes a mistake, we can turn the people against him? And back to where? Back to them. And you see this struggle, don't you? Are the people going to choose Christ or are the people going to choose Pharisees? Which is really, are the people going to choose life or are the people going to choose death, isn't it? You see this choice start to develop between the Pharisees. And you should immediately go, okay, that makes perfect sense. Back to Troy. And his assignment of the rebellious son to the Antichrist. You see this choice develop between life and death. And the death guys have a committee meeting and they say, we have to trap and we have to trick and we have to defeat this very interesting man who has tremendous power, but we don't really know who he is. And so they ask him this divorce trap question and Christ answers it with this answer. Made them male and female. They come to him and they say, what about divorce? And he says, made them male and female. And you would be wise to ask, what was the trap? The supposedly unsolvable paradox that the Pharisees thought they had here. They got together, they had a bunch of things put on the table, and they said, we can trap him with divorce. And he can't answer it. And if he answers it this way, we've trapped him. And if he answers it this way, we've trapped him. We've got him. So what is the trap question? We'll get to that in a second. And then after you try to determine how the paradox of divorce, how does made them fail in me and female destroy the paradox? Because that's what he did. And that's why we probably should read it. Or I'm going to get a whole bunch of emails if I, if I skip over it. I really want to skip over it because it ends with, as you know, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a Pharisee to enter the kingdom of God. Interchange, rich man and Pharisee, or rebellious son and Pharisee, or rich fool and Pharisee. They're interchangeable. 
Because the context is Pharisee. I'll prove it to you. 19.3, the Pharisees also came to him, testing him and saying to him. So all of Matthew 19 is about this trick question. So if you take an interpretation of Matthew 19 that isn't in the context of this trap question, then how's your likelihood that you're going to come out well with Matthew 19? Not good. You'll have an answer that doesn't address the context. The Pharisees also came to him, testing him and saying to him. The whole, again, the whole passage that I'm going to read to you is in the context of the Pharisees coming to him with their little plan. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And they knew that question cannot be answered. And if Christ makes a mistake here, they expect him to make a mistake, they're going to destroy him. How smart are these guys? They're smart. These are the smartest guys in the place. And they planned this, and they knew they had him. This is what they agreed on. By the way, how many trick questions do they throw at him over the course of his three years? Oh, they, they keep coming. They think they got him every time. They sit down, they have their meeting, they, they bring the question up, and none of them can answer it right. And they got him. He can't possibly outthink us. Well, he's God. You're stupid. He can read your mind. Because he's what? He's omniscient, omnipresent, right? But anyway, I want you to start to say to yourself, how is this such a paradox trick question? Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And here is the answer. And he answered and said to them, Have you not read? Read. That he who made them at the beginning made them male and female. So is it lawful to divorce for any reason? The answer is, what destroys the paradox is he made them male and female. You got that so far? Got it worked out. If you do, come up here and take the rest of the sermon. And then he said, and, th- and for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, so the two shall become one flesh. Let me read it again. Have you not read, he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? There is your answer, and it's amazing. What are you focusing on right off the bat? Where do you think the solution is in that sentence? Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? I'll go on. So then there, there are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, they were ready. Why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce to, and to put her away? And he said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts. What is that? What is hardness of your heart? Permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. What's the answer? Come on, yell it out. Impress the Internet people. If you yelled this out, You can go first in the buffet line. How many of you did that? Did did the lovely wife get it right? Oh, yes, it's not fair. The teacher's pet got it right. That's right. Yay for the wife. From the beginning, at the beginning. That's the solution to divorce. 
the divorce trap. <sighs> Let's see. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her uh, who is divorced commits adultery. Did I read that right? Yes. His disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, All cannot accept this saying. But only those to whom it has been given. In other words, what I just said can only be understood by who? What Christ just said can only be understood by who? Saved people. For there are eunuchs. Now you got to ask. I got a trap question on divorce. I answer it for, with male and female from the beginning, and now we're talking about eunuchs. How do eunuchs, male and female, and a trap question on divorce all fit together perfectly? See, if you have read this in the past, and all you focused on was the divorce part, and you never noticed the eunuchs, you didn't get it right. What's the buzz I need? <laughs> Wrong again. Seth, I hate to keep bringing him up, but again, it delights his grandfather. He and I are working on a laugh track for me. We think I need one, and I agree. And I can't wait to have it. It'll be cool. And I'll just push a button. And I'll like it a lot. I'll push it all the time. <laughs> Okay. Actually, we're wor working. If you if you listen to laugh tracks, they cut off really quickly. Ah ha ha! And that's the one I want. Okay. But he said to them, "All cannot accept this saying, for only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born thus from their mother's womb. Let me read that correctly. Eunuchs who were born thus." from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He who is able to accept it, let him accept it. Now, then, little children. So what are you thinking now? Okay, wait a minute. I got a divorce question. I got, I got made from the beginning, male and female. I got let them accept it. I got eunuchs. Now I have little children. That is the solution to the divorce trap, you see. Christ knew what the divorce question was really about. And it stuns me how many people don't know what the divorce question is really about. They always get it wrong, and I let them get it wrong, and I just kind of move on because I don't want to take all the time it should take to be beaten on it. But today I decided otherwise. Then little children were brought to him that he might put his hands on them and pray. But the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them. For of such is the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hand on them and departed from there. Now, that would be a good place to stop. Um, just so that you know, the, it's very complex. And um, and that's the context of the final thing here. And I, again, I say to you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a Pharisee to enter the kingdom of God. That's the context. And that, by the way, is that final sentence there, Matthew 19, 24 through 26, actually, 
because the disciples were greatly astonished. They couldn't believe it. If a Pharisee can't go to heaven, who can go to heaven? So that's the context. The divorce question trap is the context for that last verse, and that's how we got to James 2, right? But uh, again, let me just repeat as much as I can. Get through it for you. Um, Matthew 19 is solved by the at the beginning and from the beginning. What's the obvious question? At the beginning, from the beginning. What's the obvious question? At the beginning of what? At, from the beginning of what? That tells you where the Pharisees were headed, what the unsolvable paradox is, the unanswerable question trap, if you will, that they thought they had. That's why they brought up divorce, because they knew that divorce would lead to something more sinister. If he fails at divorce, he will fail someplace else that is more devastating to him. They can move from divorce because what a divorce kind of entails. And that's why Christ answers adultery, fornication, hardness of heart. What is he saying? What is hardness of heart? See, I'm going to make the case that divorce leads to, the questions on divorce are going to lead to free will. That's why you keep hearing me beat on free will. Let not man separate for this reason. What reason? See, what is him making? He has Adam, and he builds Eve, right? Out of Adam. What is that? What is the building of Eve out of Adam? The piercing of the side of Adam, reaching inside of him, pulling out bone and blood, and building a a bride for Adam. What is that? That is a picture of Christ saving the church, right? So we start out, made them male and female, is a picture from the beginning. From the beginning, the plan of salvation is hidden in making them male and female, right? From before time, from the beginning, the plan of salvation exists. And that's how we start. So we start out with salvation. He's answering. There's talking to him about divorce, and he answers back salvation. And then he follows this with eunuchs who were born thus, eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men, and eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. And then he follows that with the salvation of little children. And that should do it for you. I want you to note the sequence. For this reason... Christ will save the bride, followed in order by salvation of the eunuchs, salvation of the little children, and then salvation of what? Did you read ahead? Salvation of the rich man and the camel and the needle. And all of those spring from the Pharisees coming to Christ with a divorce question that they knew would lead to free will and they knew would lead to salvation. See, let's keep reading now. Let's read 16. Just read the first two words of verse 16. You should stop already. Why should you have stopped? Because there's a word there that makes you stop whenever you do it. There's an incredible word. We're going to talk about a rich man coming. And he is a what? 
if the tithe, he's a Pharisee. And it says this word, behold. Because something astonishing is going to happen here. Now, behold, one came. How many Pharisees are there there? The whole Pharisee group, they're sure they got him. A multitude is there. This is a big event. Thanks, Super Bowl. I got every Pharisee I can get there. They got the divorce question that they know if he doesn't answer it correctly and he immediately goes to salvation of the church, salvation of the children, salvation of the eunuchs. He knows that it is a question on free will, choosing evil or choosing good. He knows that. Why does he know it? He's God. So behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do? How much trouble is he in? Now, out of trouble, the rich Pharisees. Acting like what? A rich Pharisee. Yes, yes. We get to James 2 because of this camel thing. That's how we get there. Now, behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may be saved? So again, I have salvation again, don't I? I have a divorce question. He answers it with salvation. I have a eunuchs, which is a salvation issue again. Uh, a man who makes himself a eunuch in order to be saved. Eunuchs who were born thus. Eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men. Then I have saved little children. And now I have a man coming to say... How can I be saved? I hope you understand all of that is tied together. And I'm going over it really fast, and it's very difficult, and I get all of that. So this is about saving a who? A Pharisee. That's why the behold. Because it's really hard to save a Pharisee, isn't it? Just a second, let me get going, I'll get to you. So he said to him, why do you call me good? Because was the Pharisee right about that? Omniperfection, right? No one is good but one. So you're calling me God. Why do you call me God? That's pretty good. Nice move. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. What? And the rich Pharisee said to him, by the way, is there any such thing as a poor Pharisee? No. How do Pharisees make their money? They steal it. Who do they steal it from? First and foremost, they take it from the leprosy guys. They suck all their stuff away. And then they get it from donations. Because if you don't donate to a Pharisee, what's your problem? You're unsaved. So you're selling salvation. No such thing as a poor Pharisee. Apply that to the church today. Pharisee said to Christ, Which ones? He wants to know which commandments. And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery. What's that? You shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these things I have kept from my youth. Really? Answered like what? A Pharisee. But here's a key question. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you want to be saved, perfected, perfect, go sell what you have and give to the poor. He could say, go sell what you stole and give it back to the people you stole it from. 
and you will have treasures in heaven and come follow me. But the young man heard that saying, but when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions that he had stolen. Then Jesus said, I added that last part. Then Jesus said to the disciples, Assuredly, I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, a Pharisee. And again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich Pharisee to enter the kingdom of God. When his disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who, if not the Pharisees, who can be saved then? Because they look like the ones that are going to be saved, don't they? But Jesus looked at them and said to them, with men this is impossible. With God all things are impossible. Who can be saved? If not the Pharisees who lie about keeping the commandments, who can be saved? It's impossible for a man to save himself. And that, by the way, is another what? Yes, it's another impossible. And back you go to Hebrews 6.4 where you have the other impossibles. It is good to know your impossibles. First and foremost, it is impossible for man to save himself. God is the only way salvation comes. Anyway, all of that led us to how many camels did God put through the needle. And that naturally led us back to James 2. Which is, is this your question? I hope I'm at it. Go. In this case, we're talking about the bride, because Christ is in front of them. Yes. Where where do the eunuchs fit in? Now, I could devote the rest of the sermon to Matthew 19, couldn't I? I just want you to know the eunuchs are a picture of salvation. It's all salvation. The divorce question is salvation. Eunuchs are salvation, little children are salvation, rich Pharisees salvation. That's how it all fits together. Do I have time to get into the eunuchs today? No, I don't. I don't. But back to James 2, where I have, what, how does James 2 start? I hope you remember. I have a rich Pharisee who comes in the door. And James even says, who oppresses you? These guys oppress you. What are the Pharisees doing all the time? How do they get rich? They drag people into court. Who's in, whose court is it? What, do you think it's down in 4th Avenue District Court building? No. Who's running the courts? The Pharisees. It's the temple court. They're not taking you to the Romans. They're dragging you in front of their own courts. So here one of these Pharisees comes in who oppresses the people, drags drags him into Pharisaical courts that blasphemes the name of Christ that saves. How does he blaspheme it? He says Christ doesn't save. Who saves? The Pharisees save. That's what he says. Choose us. Free will. And anyway, that guy comes into the church that James is at. And he's given a place of honor in the church. He's led up to the front row. He's got the best seat. He's treated really good by the Christians. And what does James say that is? He says, that's evil to do that. That's an evil thought. And then he says this, if you remember from James 2. This is fascinating. I kind of glanced over it because I like to leave these things for you to work yourself through. Because you have to ask yourself, which ones? The guy wanted to know which ones to Christ. And Christ said, 
You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. Look at what James says in James 2.11, talking about the rich Pharisees. For whomever shall keep the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he is guilty of all of it. In other words, you can't keep the law to save yourself. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. To who? To a Pharisee. When? Matthew 19. James quotes Christ. James 2 quotes Christ at Matthew 19. When Christ is speaking to a Pharisee. Now, some disagree with me on that. But I think you will see that that's the case. Because Christ also says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You shall not lie. Bear false witness, which means, by the way, accuse somebody in a court of a crime that isn't true, and you will honor your father and your mother. James pulls out three of those. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Both of them have a Pharisee that has come to them. One came to Christ to ask how he can be saved. The one other one comes to James and uh, argues with him. So Matthew 19.18 And James 2 show this amazing relationship. If you want to solve James 2, the way you do it is you look at Matthew 19. So, eventually, you're going to have to solve the eunuchs and the little children. The elements are repeated. James 2, Matthew 19. There's a rich man Pharisee in both with great possessions that he stole. He comes claiming to fulfill the sovereign law. He says he keeps the commandments in both places. And he engages in a debate or a discussion on salvation, the means of salvation. One with Christ, one with James. Two guys do the same thing. And Christ answers, you shall not commit murder, you shall not commit adultery, you should love your neighbor as yourself, you should honor your father and your mother. Because who doesn't honor the father and the mother in the Bible? Who tries to kill them? The rebellious son. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And James picks out murder, adultery, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Christ says salvation is by grace through faith and no one keeps the law. And James does the same thing. Matthew 19, James 2 are almost identical. They contain almost the same elements identically in the right order. What I mean by that is look at this Pharisee beginning context, rich Pharisee beginning the context of Matthew 19 by coming through a great multitude to trap Christ about salvation. And James 2 begins with an oppressive, rich Pharisee claiming to keep the law as his means of salvation, coming to argue with James about salvation. There, there, you can't miss it once you see it. Both of all, or all of these, these Pharisees that are in this discussion are what? That's right, they're camels. Rebellious sons, rich men, and camels. I saw the other day that children in Flora cannot read because they were given a reading test on a write a short story about riding a camel. And apparently they don't know what a camel is. And I thought, here's my opportunity to go to Florida and teach them that camels are Pharisees. <laughs> And let's see how well that goes over. Can't be any worse than their current educational system. 
Matthew 19, a camel breaks away from all the other camels, knowing that he is lacking something, understanding that he is unsaved, knowing that Christ is absolute goodness. And he comes to Christ and Christ says, stop murdering, stop committing adultery, stop stealing, stop lying about God, stop being the rebellious son, stop killing people. Stop hating and killing the Gentiles. And the rich Pharisee said, ooh, that's tough. Because I'm a rich Pharisee. Uh, I've kept all of those, by the way, he says. I believe it. I believe that you have murdered and killed everybody. I kind of twisted that around. Jesus says, if you want to be saved, quit murdering, quit stealing, quit committing adultery, quit killing your father and your mother, quit lying about the goodness of God, and quit hating your neighbor. And when you do all of that and give back everything that you've stolen, come and follow me. And he was sad about that and didn't do it. And Christ says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a works-based murdering rich Pharisee to be saved. you got to ask again. Christ says you're a murderer, you're an adulterer, you're stealing, you're lying, you're accusing God of a crime, bearing false witness against God, you're killing your father and mother, and, you, and you're hating your neighbors. Because that's exactly what the Pharisees teach with full knowledge. They know they're lying about God. They know that salvation um, is only achievable if God gives it. They know they're not, they're not this guy's perfect. He says, listen... I'm not saved, and I know I'm not saved. What do I got to do to be saved? And then he, 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 he mimics the Pharisee line. Pharisees say that you can be saved by yourself. And that's what? That's murdering people. That's adulterous pagan idol worship. Because the idol is themselves. They think they can save themselves. They really don't think that, but they want you to think that. So they teach you that you can save yourself. What does that do? That kills you. That hates you. That turns you into a hedonist. And it dooms you. And it's also stealing. As I said, the Pharisees stole everything from everyone. Literally, they stole the possessions of others and became rich by it. But they also stole the eternal lives with their lies about God. They accused God of demanding the impossible, that mankind has to save himself. They say that God said that. And God says the opposite. He says that's impossible. Man can't sign himself. But they say and they taught that God gave man the task of saving himself through adherence to a bunch of silly uh, traditions and some and laws and works. And God, again, did not do that. That's lying about him. He does the opposite. Salvation must be given. And therefore, if man must save himself, God is what? What's the natural progression? If I say to you that man, you must save yourself, and it's impossible, but God set that system up, what have I just said about God? He put a system together that you can't succeed at, that you're going to fail, and he's going to judge you to death. He's going to give you capital punishment in a system that you can't possibly achieve. So what is God? declared him evil. And the Pharisees then 
are the rebellious sons of Deuteronomy 21, Exodus 21, Leviticus 20, the killers of their mother and father, the murderers of the little children by setting them, burning them alive in the hands of the idol Moloch. They're kidnappers. They're premeditated kidnappers and killers. They knowingly do it. They're haters of their brethren and the Gentiles. They're seeking eternal death for everyone they touch. And James answers, And he responds to the rich Pharisee who confronts him exactly the same way. He calls him a murderer, an adulterer, and a hater. uses the same language that Christ uses. And hopefully, when you lay Matthew 19 side by side with James 2, you will see how they fit. Especially when you add the parable of the two sons, Luke 15, which we kind of sorted in last week. But I want to finish the three-part trilogy this way, because we're headed back to Ezekiel 28, Isaiah 14, Proverbs 6. And that's where Troy got us going. Kind of. Troy said the rebellious son has to be a symbol of the Antichrist, and that's true. But the rebellious son is really a symbol of who? Satan. Because he is the rebellious son. He's the first. As you know, there's somebody named Saul Walensky that wrote a book that dedicated his book to the rebellious son. And he's very popular with one side of the political spectrum. Um, he has no idea how evil Satan is. Now he does, because he's dead, Mr. Walensky. Choosing Satan is not a good plan. But yet, it's the plan most have. And so we're headed now to the motives of Satan, who is the rebellious son. We've got to understand how this rebellion began, because that's very important. Um, and so how do, we, how do we figure out? Well, we figure it out by looking at how Christ uh, treats the Pharisees. Because they're who? They are pictures of Satan. They are rebellious sons. They are the lesser of the rebellious son, if you will. So that gives us some insight into Satan. The Pharisees are called Satan's brood, his vipers by Christ, which is his reflection, if you will. So we can catch a glimpse of Satan. We can see him by evaluating and studying his Pharisees. They emulate Satan knowingly and unknowingly. So we start with the actions and words of the Pharisees as described by God in Matthew 23. And from that we can work ourselves backward to Satan uh, himself. So I'm going to read Matthew 23 really fast. Got to hustle now. So I get you to the buffet on time. My goal for this new time was not to go over every week. But I don't do so well. I want you, as I'm reading this, to find the themes of James 2, which would include, by the way, Matthew 9. So look for someone who will say that he is saved but has faith in himself to save himself, which James identifies as a dead faith that cannot save, that does not save. This kind of faith, does it save? Of course not. What does it do? It kills. That's what James says, okay? So here we're going to read uh, Christ's description of what the Pharisees are and what they do. Then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So again, Mark, I'm sorry, Matthew 23, in the context of the Pharisees. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, observe and do, but do not do according to their works. For they say and do not. So they're pretending. They're hypocrites. 
They're liars. For they bind heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on men's shoulders. They say to men, you can be saved by this system we're giving you, and that system is impossible. And so those people that try exhaust their wealth and die. But they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers, but all their works they do is to be seen by men. If your life is dedicated to be seen by humanity, you are opposite of what God intends for you. He intends for you to be quiet, in the background, humble and kind. Evaluate your life. Am I quiet, in the background, humble and kind? Or am I a Pharisee? What are we all? Ain't doing so good, are we? Figure out what a Pharisee is. Don't be it. But all their works they do to be seen by men. They make their... Phylacteries, those are little boxes that they carried around that showed people how holy they were with their Bible knowledge, essentially. Have you know anybody like that? Yeah, they're all over the place. They used to all come here. I wonder why they left. Uh, if I get told God has given me a word for you one more time, I just don't know what I'll do. I, I, I always answer it the same way. I always say, uh, I'm not so sure he used you as the telephone. You know, I'm just not sure. So I'm hoping he calls me directly. But all their works they do to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments. They love, they love the best places at the feasts. They want to be seen. They want to be in the best places. The best seats in the synagogues, greeted in the marketplaces, and to be called by men, Rabbi, Rabbi. But you do not be called Rabbi. For one is your teacher, the Christ, and you are all brethren. Do not call anyone on earth your father. <coughs> for one is your father who is in heaven. And do not be called teachers, for one is your teacher, the Christ. But he who is greatest among you shall be your servant. And whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. You make it impossible for men to be saved, or try to. For you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. The whole goal of the Pharisees is to what? Deny eternal life to as many people as they can. Which is what? Murder. Woe to you, scribes. When God says, woe to you, that's bad. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Hypocrites, you, for you devour widows' houses. That's, by the way, how they get rich. Anytime somebody comes along and takes the house of a widow, what do I got? She didn't make her taxes, didn't pay her electric bill, didn't what? He buys it cheap, sells it big, makes a lot of money, and runs for president. Never mind. Makes me mad. You devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. Therefore you will receive greater condemnation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel land and sea to win one proselyte. 
And when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of El as you say. And it goes on and on and on. And you'll see altar, and you'll see blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. So you have the altar, you have the camel, you have the killing and the murder, the devouring of widows, the pretense, the lying, the blindness, the brood of vipers. How can you escape the condemnation of hell? What's implied in that? They can't. So, binding heavy burdens on people, making them sons of hell, stealing and devouring widows, uh, just thieves, just taking all the physical reality that they can, wanting to be rich, murdering people by keeping them out of, of heaven if they can, pretending and lying, calling themselves men with special authority. That's what the father is. That's what the teacher is. They're saying that they are the ones who are originating. Do you ever hear anybody in a religious church say that they are the one who, to whom has this original gift of, of whatever? They're the ones who has the truth. They're the only ones with the truth. We have to listen to them. They are the source of the truth. They are originating the truth out of themselves. Being seen by men, called by men, lovers of the best places, and lying hypocrites. How can you escape the condemnation of hell? The implication is you can't. The implication, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than someone who is a Pharisee to be saved. Now again, that is the outward expression of the hidden thoughts of the Pharisees. We're able to see the inside them by what they do and therefore what they are. And they are evil. And they reflect their father Satan, John 8:44. They lie and they murder. So now what do we know about Satan? He lies and he murders. But we still don't know why. Satan has clearly set himself in contradiction or in contrast to God. There is no question. The divorce question gets me here. There is no debate that Satan is saying, choose me. Choose Satan. Because the other choice is choose God. And he set himself in stark opposition, just like Christ does in Exodus 21. Christ does exactly that because Christ calls himself the Hebrew slave, right? The, the servant who dies, who is forever pierced, who is forever loving his family, if you will. And Satan is the rebellious son. Those contrasts are deliberately set up in Exodus 20 and 21, as you now know, or as you should know. So this is Satan saying, I am the truth. I am the Savior. I am real. I am the ultimate life. And God is the evil one. When the, the opposite is the case. Satan is the liar, the murderer, the pretender, and ultimate death. And Christ is the truth, the Savior. He is real, and he is the ultimate life. And so here you have this setting, this alternate other choice that requires what? Choice requires what? Free will. So I have this free will issue. Be a slave to death and sin, or be free to live? Whom will you choose? 
And most overwhelmingly, sadly, most people, overwhelmingly most people, choose death and sin forever. So obviously, God or Satan saw this. He saw this free will issue, didn't he? He saw this as an opportunity. And what am I doing here? I'm trying to ask, why did he do what he did? What's his motive? But I could see by setting up this choosing, choose the Pharisees, choose the rebellious son, choose me. I see this choosing element here, choose Satan over God. And I know that he has focused on free will because he knows you have it. He sees that as his place to attack, to launch his plan, if you will. And a comparison of Isaiah 14 and Exodus 28 tells us that Satan wished that he desired for more power and recognition. He says this very important thing. I will also sit on the mountain. So he will be on the mountain also, side by side. Again, this choice, side by side comes. I will be like God. So, again, I got, I got God and I got like God. I got sit on a mountain, I got also sit on a mountain. I will exalt my throne above the angels. Again, side by side throne. This desire to be worshipped, to be chosen. And that eventually caused Satan to be filled with violence. Genesis 6.11, by the way, if you read, you'll find the same phrase. Filled with violence in Genesis 6 prior to the flood, Satan filled with violence. Satan would murder those who chose him, and he would murder those who didn't choose him. So why? It says there in Ezekiel 28.16, By the abundance of your traffic, you became filled with violence within. In other words, by going to each angel one at a time, repeating this lie that he has. Uh, and we'll get into that next week, the fivefold lies of Satan. I'll finally do it. There was no, in other words, he's saying there's no solution to free will sin. By going from angel to angel to angel and telling that lie, he became filled with violence. How did telling that lie make him filled with violence? In other words, let me repeat it this way. By lying one at a time to each angel, he becomes filled with violence, which means he wants to kill the ones that go with him and he wants to kill the ones that don't. He is filled to the brim. He's going to kill them all. By the way, that takes you to the Antichrist, doesn't it? He is going to kill the ones who believe in him and he's going to kill the ones that don't. He is filled with violence as well. He has Satan inside of him at some point. By going to each angel, repeating the lie, Satan became filled with murder. That needs to be explained. What is the cause and the effect? How does one cause the other? You solve that. How it is that his lie caused him to kill both the ones who believed his lie and ones that didn't. You solve that and you have solved the motive of Satan. It is that easy. I've experienced this, by the way. I have people come to me and they hate me if I believe them, and they hate me if I don't. I have found that to be a very common human behavior. And that is what made me look at Satan very carefully. He kills you if you believe him. He kills you if you don't. It is the same. How does that paradigm lead to his motive? You can figure that out before you finish the buffet. 
Let's rise and be dismissed.